everyone, and welcome back to the UConn Internal Medicine Podcast. This is your host, Rob Harmon, one of the chief medical residents here at UConn. Before we get into the content, a quick disclaimer. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the UConn Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. Thank you for joining us. Today, we will be reviewing hypertension. We commonly diagnose and treat patients with hypertension in the outpatient setting. There are many classes of medications and related disease processes that we could talk about, However, today we will primarily be focusing on diagnosis and non-pharmacological management. Let's jump in. First, we will review diagnostic criteria for hypertension. Although there are alternative guidelines, we will be sticking to the ACC and AHA guidelines for the purposes of our discussion. With these guidelines, normal blood pressure is defined as a systolic less than 120 and a diastolic less than 80 millimeters of mercury. An elevated blood pressure is considered anything in the range of 120 to 129 systolic and less than 80 diastolic. Stage 1 is defined as 130 to 139 millimeters of mercury for the systolic or 80 to 89 for the diastolic. Stage 2 is defined as greater than 140 millimeters of mercury for the systolic or greater than or equal to 90 for the diastolic. Hypertensive crisis is defined as greater than 180 and or greater than 120 for systolic and diastolic respectively. Hypertensive crisis is defined as greater than 180 millimeters of mercury systolic and or greater than 120 millimeters of mercury for the diastolic. With these diagnostic guidelines in mind, what are some factors that may affect the values that we get in the office? Blood pressure values that are obtained during the daytime can be affected by stress, physical activity, and timeline of when the blood pressure was checked in relation to the time that medications were taken. We may also see blood pressure values be affected by recent smoking or caffeine intake, as well as bladder distension. If our patient has been identified as having an elevated blood pressure reading, we should be sure to ask about this sort of exposure to guide our management plan. Outside of the factors just discussed, we should also consider whether the blood pressure value that was obtained is accurate. As part of our validation, we should recheck the blood pressure after the patient has had at least 5 minutes of rest. There are other factors that are important to consider, such as cuff size. When choosing a cuff size, it is recommended that the cuff bladder length be 80% and the width be at least 40% of the circumference of the upper arm. The patient should be in seated position with their legs uncrossed, feet flat on the floor, and with their back supported. Additionally, the arm should be elevated and supported at the level of the heart, as an arm that is unsupported and resting at the patient's side can lead to as much as a 12 mm of mercury elevation in the blood pressure reading. Also, from a procedural standpoint, given their accuracy and reproducibility of results, semi-automated blood pressure measurement devices are generally preferred to manual. However, if a manual device is being used, standard procedure for checking blood pressure should be also used. For manual measurements, first you should determine the estimated systolic blood pressure by inflating the cuff to the point where the radial pulse is no longer felt. You should then inflate the cuff approximately 30 millimeters of mercury above the value you just obtained in the previous step to avoid missing the oscillatory gap. The systolic blood pressure will be the value at which the first Kortikoff sound is heard, and the diastolic blood pressure will be the value at the time of the disappearance of the Kortikoff sound. We should be taking blood pressure measurements in both arms, and we should be using the higher value when determining whether the patient screens positive for hypertension. Now we have our accurate blood pressure reading, and let's say it's elevated. Does my patient have hypertension? 
Well, you could make that diagnosis after a single outpatient reading if the blood pressure reading is greater than 160 over 100 and the patient has known end organ damage, such as in patients with hypertensive retinopathy, ischemic cardiovascular disease, or LVH, for example. You could also diagnose the patient with hypertension after a presentation for hypertensive urgency or emergency. Otherwise, in general, the diagnosis of hypertension should not be made until the patient has obtained out-of-office blood pressure measurements to assure that we are not dealing with white coat hypertension. If out-of-office measurements are not possible to make the diagnosis of hypertension, blood pressure has to be measured and found to be elevated at three separate appointments spaced over a period of weeks to months. If you have a patient who has an isolated elevated blood pressure reading, not only should they be scheduled for close interval follow-up, but you should also consider prescribing a blood pressure cuff or assist in establishing visiting services so that the patient can obtain blood pressure values from various times of the day. The patient can record the blood pressure reading so that when they return for follow-up, there are more data points to review. There are websites where patients can check the device that they have at home to ensure that it has been vetted through an independent review process as a validated device. Let's consider that now we have made the diagnosis of hypertension. What are the first steps we should consider in management? Several guidelines like the ACC and AHA support lifestyle modification for initial hypertension intervention, especially in motivated patients with a diagnosis of stage 1 hypertension and an ASCVD risk of less than 10%. It is reasonable to start with healthy lifestyle recommendations and reassessing the patient in 3 to 6 months. Let's take weight loss for example. In a meta-analysis of 25 randomized trials, Decreasing weight by 5.1 kilograms, reduced systolic blood pressure by 4.4 millimeters of mercury, and diastolic blood pressure by 3.6 millimeters of mercury. Some studies have observed as much as a 20 millimeters of mercury reduction in blood pressure per 10 kilogram weight loss, suggesting that this effect may be greater with increased weight loss. Patients should also be encouraged to either increase or maintain their physical activity level. If they express difficulty due to responsibilities at home and or work, you may need to be creative and help come up with some ways to incorporate exercise into the patient's daily routine. Most improvements in blood pressure are reported with at least 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity physical activity, such as with brisk walking. Another meta-analysis showed that regular aerobic exercise, such as power walking or light jogging, produces an average reduction of 4 millimeters of mercury in systolic blood pressure and 3 millimeters of mercury in diastolic blood pressure. Let's review some dietary considerations as well. It's helpful to have an accurate picture of what the patient is consuming daily. One way to obtain this in the office is through 24-hour dietary recall. If the patient has a smartphone, there are also many apps on the market that can assist with dietary tracking. Patients may be more cognizant of what their diet consists of if they are actively logging all of their intake. There are a lot of different diets circulating, but specifically for patients with hypertension, you may want to consider introducing your patient to the DASH, or Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension Diet. DASH diet focuses on consuming foods that are low in saturated fat, total fat, and cholesterol, as well as on increasing fruits, vegetables, low-fat dairy products, and whole grains. With this diet, it is also important to choose foods that are rich in potassium, calcium, magnesium, fiber, and protein, but lower in sodium content. In terms of outcomes, maintaining adherence to a DASH diet is expected to lower blood pressure by an average of 5.5 millimeters of mercury for the systolic and 3 millimeters of mercury for the diastolic. Limiting sodium specifically plays a large role in controlling hypertension. The DASH diet limits to 2300 milligrams of sodium, however, a limit of 1500 milligrams has even greater effect. 
For example, with a 2400 milligram sodium restricted diet, we can expect a 2 over 1 millimeter reduction in blood pressure, whereas in a 1500 milligram sodium restriction, we can expect a 7 over 3 millimeter mercury reduction in blood pressure. So now we've discussed weight loss, physical activity, and dietary changes that the patient could consider. What about stress? If patients are under a high amount of stress, they may benefit from something such as a mindfulness-based stress reduction program. This type of program primarily focuses on avoiding judgment, increasing awareness, and focusing on the present moment, but also include exercises such as meditation and yoga. A meta-analysis found that there was an average reduction of 16.6 millimeters of mercury for systolic blood pressure and 4.1 millimeters for diastolic blood pressure reduction. Lastly, when it comes to non-pharmacological intervention, we should consider screening for obstructive sleep apnea using the STOP-BANG criteria. And, if positive, the patient should be referred for sleep study, as OSA is one of the most common risk factors for hypertension. With all of this in mind, remember, we are primarily talking about primary hypertension. It's important to remember that as many as 10% of patients with hypertension have secondary hypertension. Therefore, a detailed history and physical is important in order to determine whether further workup is indicated. Additionally, drug-induced hypertension is relatively common, so we should be conducting a thorough review of all prescription and non-prescription agents that the patient is taking. The list of culprit agents is quite long, but some common ones are NSAIDs, ADH medications, antidepressants, decongestants, and sodium-containing antacids. If you discover the patient is taking any offending agents during your medication reconciliation, you should take the opportunity to have a shared decision-making conversation about deprescribing and, if possible, using an alternative agent with less of an effect on blood pressure. We've learned a lot about how to manage blood pressure pharmacologically, but as you can see, there are many opportunities for our patients to make meaningful lifestyle changes that not only positively impact their blood pressure, but their overall health. Hopefully, with some of these interventions fresh in your mind, you can help motivate your patients and positively impact their health. Thank you again for listening this week. That's all we have for you today. Stay curious, and until next time.